so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech Newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Tony Ranke, a nonprofit journalist and author of numerous books, including his latest, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. Today, we talk about a biblical theology of technology and how it affects the Christian life. Tony Ranke also serves as a senior teacher and host of the Ask Pastor John podcast at Desiring God. He's the author of Lit, a Christian guide to reading books, competing spectacles, and 12 ways your phone is changing you. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get going, can you tell us a little bit about your path to serving at Desiring God, as well as your interest in studying technology? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I uh, was trained in journalism. That was kind of my formal background training before I was saved, and the Lord and His uh, kindness saved me at the age of 22. And uh, I kind of wrestled with, uh, you know, what does it mean to be a, a Christian who has this journalistic background? And I just kind of played around with, like, what would that look like to do sort of Christian ethics eventually is what what it became. And applying uh, the, the journalism training that I had to the, the ethical questions that the church was facing. And uh, that sort of grew over time. Uh, I worked for a denomination out in D.C. for four years. That was my first uh go at uh, full-time ministry, and then I was hired to uh, serve John Piper and Desiring God in 2012. And there, I just started playing around with podcasts and uh, uh, launched a little podcast of my own called Authors on the Line. I would just call up authors of books, and we would uh, you know, talk for 40, 45 minutes, and uh, uh, did about 12 of those. And uh, in my first year uh, in 2012, I ended that year with a little episode with Pastor John himself. I actually had him on my my uh, Authors on the Line podcast for DG, and everything worked well. And then I proposed uh, in January of 2013 that we start a, a new podcast called Ask Pastor John with John Piper, and having him answer you know biographical questions, uh, leadership questions, theology questions, Bible exegesis questions, things like that, and. Uh, so really jumped uh, in with both feet, uh, so to speak, when, when it comes to Christian ethics and and uh, 
um, do that podcast now. We're entering, we're, we just entered our 10th year now. So we're <laughs> nearing a decade uh, doing Ask Pastor John the, the podcast. And so God has been really kind. Uh, but that's always kind of been my interest is uh, asking the hardest questions. Like, what does it mean to live by faith in this this world? And uh, of course, there's a lot of different things to to address, as you guys know, at the ERLC. And uh, there's just a lot to think through. And um, Ask Pastor John was just a natural outflowing of my gifts and interests. And uh, he just does a great job answering the questions. And so we've been at it for about a decade. I answer all the qu- uh, emails. I, I collate those, uh, pose the questions to him. I do the recording and the audio edits and publishing and all that. So that's my uh, most most of my job now, Desiring God, is just uh, stewarding Ask Pastor John. Yeah. Well, I know one of the things I've benefited a lot from the Ask Pastor John podcast, I used to listen to it on my commute before I started working at home um, the last couple of years, and really benefited from the, the pastoral kind of content, the ethical questions, and how to navigate some of those things. And I think one of the most pressing questions, at least that we're beginning to ask as a society, is the nature of technology. Like, what is it? And I think that's one of the most important questions we can ask in the digital age is, what is the nature of technology? What really is it before we always just get to kind of how do we deal with X, Y, and Z is kind of asking some of those more philosophical and kind of deeper questions. So I want to pose that to you. What is technology in the proper sense? And what are some of these myths that we've come to believe about technology in our society today? Yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, Technology is... um the amplification of native dexterity or powers that we have uh, as humans uh, amplified. And so I go back to the battle of uh, David and Goliath to show that this is a face-off between two technologists. So um, David has a sling. It's a more primitive technology, but it amplifies the the power of his arm um, into the the flinging of a stone. And of course, Goliath is uh, shrouded head to foot in the, the, elite war tech of his day. So he would, you know, as, as a warrior go out, he would uh, defeat his enemies, and then he would plunder the battlefield of whatever tech he wanted. So when you see this standoff happening, uh, Goliath is is in head to toe covered in the latest tech. I mean, he is the elite technologist of his day. He is the F-22. He's the Raptor. He's the, you know, whatever tech you want to draw in today. I mean, he is the elite technologist and David comes in as a sniper, uh, basically. And uh, in hand-to-hand combat, Goliath is going to win. I mean, he could take out 10 guys, easy. And uh, But coming into this battle, David comes in with a sling. And a sling allows him to be a sniper, to be a very uh, strategic in his technology. And uh, so before he goes out to battle, of course, Saul says, hey, try my war tech on, try my sword, try my shield. And David doesn't have the... He doesn't have the technique. He doesn't have the experience with that technology. He can't use it. Uh, it's not going to amplify his native powers. Um, and so he goes with what he knows. He go, goes out with a sling, which is a, a brilliant tactical move uh, to go out in a one-to-one combat uh, like he did with a sling. And it proves to be decisive. Now, obviously, the, the point of that story is not who's the greater technologist. The point is who has the greater God. And David's God, of course, uh, wins. That's the main point of the story. But it is a story of two technologists who are amplifying their powers um, through uh, a technology that will, will make them more powerful. Um, and that's essentially what technology does uh, at, at its most base definition. I know one of the things that you do throughout all of your work, specifically in this one, is you engage with thinkers and leaders of the past, but also the present. 
And this book is really interesting because you bring in some key voices, some older voices that some of us may be familiar with, like Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink, all the way up to people like Elon Musk of today. So who are some of these voices that you, you interact with throughout the book, and how do they help us to navigate kind of this wild world of technology, especially those who come from a pre-digital time? Yeah, what I see in the Tower of Babel, um, speaking of this theologically for a moment, is that you have this human aspiration uh, coming into this this unified consensus about what humanity can do. Let's build this religious tower to the sky to worship humanity and to worship self-glory. And God comes in and squelches that, he hacks it, and he spreads, of course, his, his people across the globe. So instead of having one city, uh, God intends to have a thousand cities, and that's how he does it. One of the things that he does in, in that action is he creates this, this dynamic that we live with to this day, which is that we don't have universal consensus. So whether we're talking about vaccines or AI or robots or space travel, there's not going to be human consensus. God has squelched that. He's in that. And that's a mercy from him. And so it creates this dynamic. And so what I wanted to do in this book uh, is to illustrate how this dynamic works today. And so I bring in a voice like Wendell Berry, who's, you know, an American novelist, an essayist, conservationist, uh, who's known for really belligerence towards big tech, I would say. Uh, He frames his conservationism within a Christian worldview. And so I wanted to bring his voice in and put it alongside Elon Musk, who is, of course, you know, a, a billionaire, eccentric entrepreneur, a technologist behind some of uh, America's most ambitious companies like Tesla, SpaceX, Neuralink, things like that. And he's really pushing forward uh, space exploration to get us to, to colonize Mars. I mean, that's the thing that gets him out of bed, according to his uh, biographer. And so putting Elon Musk and Wendell Berry side by side and saying, if you only listen to one of them, I think you're going to be off balance in how you view technology, but them together, we can learn from both of them. And I think that's what I'm trying to do in this book uh, when I bring in those voices uh, is bring in the technologist, bring in the tech optimist and bring in the tech pessimist, the, the agrarian voices as well, and let them sort of have a conversation in a sense, because there's wisdom in listening to both of them. So you don't just jump on board and think, yeah, the future of humanity is on Mars, or you don't just think like, uh, we need to be anti-tech, and that's somehow going to be godly to be a dystopian. Um, and, 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 and bringing in those voices, bringing in multiple voices allows that balance and allows you to hear from different people. And I think that's what Babel tells us to do. Uh, it tells us to listen to a chorus rather than expect universal consensus because that consensus isn't going to happen. Yeah, I know two of those figures, especially for me, and we talk a lot about them here on the podcast, are Herman Bavink and Jacques Ellul. They have kind of different uh, understandings of God and the world and uh, how, especially our ethical responsibility. And those two voices you highlight in the book. Um, you use Elul throughout the book. Obviously, you you lean upon Kuiper and Bavink, et cetera. Um, but they've been very influential in my life kind of as opposing voices in some sense about technology, ethics, and theology. What was it about their works specifically that you wanted to draw them into this conversation and how do they help kind of frame up this understanding of God, technology, and the Christian life? Yeah, so I would, I would include uh, John Calvin in there too because I, I think without Calvin, you don't get Bavink and Kuiper. And so Calvin, Kuiper, and Bavink are three voices that um, they were working through common grace. Like what does it mean to have God's common grace within culture, within the economy, within science, technology, innovation, industry, things like that. 
And so Calvin had this idea of common grace. He said, um, he, he went to the extent to say that the same Holy Spirit that regenerates non-believers into Christians, the same Spirit that regenerates is the same Spirit active in uh, human culture making, in industry, and in producing the goods that better our lives. And that's a pretty bold statement. And that bold statement led uh, Bob Inc., and especially Kuiper, to sort of develop this, this concept of common grace. And of course, Kuiper wrote the 2,000-page book on this, uh, which has been uh, recently translated and released uh, by uh, Lexham Press, I believe. And so they're building off of uh, Calvin's vision of common grace. Bobbing takes more of a, a less optimistic angle on, on all of it. He's more quick to show what science can't do, uh, whereas Kuiper is going to be more the optimist and probably more where I'm at, where he's going he's to show uh, an optimism in human culture making, in technology and industry. What happens, though, is as the church is putting these things together, trying to think through what does it mean to live in a technological revolution, which 1860 to 1913, roughly those 50 years, were the watershed technological age that the world has ever seen. Uh, everything changed between uh, roughly 1863 and 1913, and that's where Kuiper was trying to f- uh, to flesh this out. Like, what do Christians say as we live in this age when surgery and healthcare and uh, hygiene and communications and travel and shipping and everything is changing. <laughs> Absolutely everything is changing in the world in those 50 years. And so Kuiper jumps in with, with Calvin's model of common grace and starts to develop that out. Now, what happens is in 1913 and following, you have World War One, and then you have World War Two, and then you have the Cold War. And my theory is that once you get into the wars and start to amplify uh, human powers of destruction, the church finds it really hard from that point on to really celebrate common grace and to celebrate man's inventiveness. Um, and so, you know, just the the language of common grace and that whole theological tradition that was sort of building out of Calvin and building in Bavink and Kuiper, uh, it just really falls to the background. And for the basically for the past 100 years, the church's theologians have been more uh, dystopian, more pessimist when it comes to technology. And so we've really lost that that common grace motif that that the church was developing uh, before World War One. And so a lot of what my book is trying to do is to to retrieve that, to reclaim it and uh, see if it applies to Silicon Valley in 2022, and I believe it does. Yeah, and I really think it does, and that's one of the things that I appreciate about your book, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, is kind of your more optimistic approach to technology. I think a lot of people kind of see technology as dystopian. They see these the dangers of technology and kind of want to push it away, but you're saying, look, there are things that we can embrace with technology and technological development, but at the same time, we need to be wise about it. And that's one of the things that, I've benefited from, especially with Jacques Ellul, uh, who's the French sociologist. We've talked a lot about him on the podcast. We had uh, Alan Noble on not too long ago talking about his You Are Not Your Own book, uh, which has Ellul throughout as well. But there's one thing that always has struck me about Ellul that always makes me uncomfortable. And I think it's kind of related some in some sense to the theory that you had with the wars, kind of a more deterministic kind of dystopian approach to technology, is that the way he approaches what he calls technique in the modern world is more deterministic. Um, so in some sense, this is we've had this debate here on the podcast before between a more tool-based approach, more instrumental versus a more deterministic use of technology. Um, that in some sense, he's arguing that technology is autonomous, unstoppable, and unlimited. And this is opposed to that more tool-based approach that the church historically has taken. So 
How might Christians better understand the design and the disciple-making aspects of technology, how it's pushing us to particular ends, but maybe contra Elul kind of bringing, we have to, we do have moral responsibility and that we don't look, it's not just a dystopian type future. How, how would you frame that debate up for Christians? Yeah, it can be framed a lot of different ways. I think one thing to say is that you're saying technologies are neutral doesn't get us very far in the conversation. Um, so that's that's one of the things to say. Every technology comes packaged with biases that we have to acknowledge and work through as Christians. So every tech is complicated by its potential, uh, its potential to be used virtuously or sinfully. And so we have to untangle that. And so in one sense, the sort of pros and cons of particular tech are things that have to be worked through very carefully. And this is why I wrote 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You First. Because I figured for people to really have uh, the patience with a book on a, an optimistic view of technology, they would first need to be reassured that there is a debate over things like smartphones and social media, and the, there's pros and cons that have to be worked through. But I think in general, the angle that I take in this book is that when it comes to our platforms, like let's say you know Facebook sort of celebrates fringe thinking. So if you're on Facebook and you want to make a big splash and gain a lot of followers, the more friends you're thinking is, uh, the more you're going to build that audience. Or on Instagram, if you're willing to, you know, sort of show more of your body, you know, Instagram is going to celebrate those who uh, show more and more of their themselves. There's a certain bias that's built into the platform. Twitter, I think, is more on the line of like sarcasm. The more sarcastic you're willing to be, the the more funny you're willing to be, the bigger your audience is going to grow. And so there's certain biases in every platform that push us uh, in certain directions. But what I found in doing my research is that's the same exact tension that we face inside of cities. So as we as we try to live out the Christian life, each of our cities have certain idolatrous biases and tendencies that we have to acknowledge and, and, and realize that they're just there. So if I'm going to live in the city of Phoenix, there are certain biases here about comfort and about retirement and about ease and about, yeah, you name it. I mean, like the toys, the toys in this city are amazing. I mean, people have four wheelers and dirt bikes and fast jet boats. And I, I mean, like the toys around me, even in my neighborhood are, are thick, you know? So I live in a city that has a certain re bent towards recreation and comfort and retirement ease that I have to be aware of because I live in the city. And that's what Revelation chapters two and three teach us is that each of those seven cities each have an idolatrous tendency within them. And so if you're going to live as a Christian within those cities, you have to be aware of that and you have to push back against that and live in a way that honors Christ. And there's spiritual warnings and promises in those chapters for those, those Christians in those seven cities. And what I came to realize is that when it comes to a biblical theology of technology, it's basically a biblical theology of the city. Those are one in the same. That means on one hand, as you press into sort of the anti-tech bias that you that you read, what you find in behind that oftentimes is an anti-urban bias. There's sort of an anti-urban bias that's sort of underneath it, and then you you feel a sort of anti-technology bias that comes out of that. And so wrestling with this book, I, I realized I really have to address the city. And this is where Eliul comes into to play here because he's, he's written the best book on cities, now without problems. But he really helps us understand the biblical storyline of how God and the city relate, which is a very tense and complicated relationship. And so what I came to realize is that's really the, the storyline of technology. It's the story of the city. 
And so you've got to you've got to deal with that. And so there's certain uh, biases and tendencies in our cities, and there's certain biases and tendencies in all of our technology. And we have to live with that awareness and live as Christians with discernment to use them wisely. That's just fundamental to our life in the digital age. I think for some Christians, as we come to conversations about technology, we often think the Bible doesn't talk a lot about technology since we don't, you can't go to a concordance and find, you know, technology or AI or robots or spaceships or what have you. So there's just kind of this unwritten assumption, well, the Bible doesn't really talk a lot about it. Obviously, you believe it does, and you kind of expand on that, as you, especially with that city motif that you've been talking about. Can you help us to understand outside of some of the more traditional stories, like you've already mentioned the Tower of Babel, Noah's Ark, and um, even David and Goliath, some more of kind of how this biblical theme of technology in the city, What, how do we see this kind of play out throughout Scripture? Yeah, the city is one way that's pervasive. Another way is I, like on page two or three in Genesis chapter four, we, we see the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain, his life is preserved. He should be executed for his sin against his brother, but Cain's life is preserved. And we don't really know why at first. Why is Cain going to to wear this mark that says, don't mess with this guy, don't beat him up, don't kill him. Why is Cain's life so carefully preserved by God? And what we find later on in chapter four is that uh, Cain is preserved because he's going to have three great, great, great grandsons. And those great, great, great grandsons are going to be industry leaders. They're going to inaugurate new industries. So already on page two or three, we see the story, the origin story of innovation the origin story of industry, the origin story of some key industries that we can trace to this day, namely cattle breeding, ranching, basic genetics is what I would call it, um, or tool making or professional music making. Those three industries, we can tie right back to Cain's lineage in Genesis 4. And so you see from the very early pages, um, the story of human in- inventiveness and innovation is brought right into the storyline of Scripture. So we see it in Genesis 4. Of course, we see it in the Tower of Babel. We see it in the Ark. I mean, Noah's Ark is amazing uh, as an as a engineering feat. And it's not only fascinating as an engineering feat, it's fascinating because within the, the Ark, Noah carries the entire technological know-how of Cain's lineage that's going to be wiped out with the flood. And so Noah is a sort of a midwife of, of technology to the restart of humanity. Um, of course, you have David and Goliath in Job 28 is really interesting because uh, there in the foreground, we have mining, the practice of mining, which is space exploration, but going down, not up. And it's really fascinating to see Job talk about, you know, this uh, sort of this innovator, the most um, interesting innovator discoverer of his age, the miner, and what he's uncovering is he pulls up gems and gold from the ground. And it's just a fascinating story. Then you get to, you know, Psalm 20, where David's wrestling with why is it that we're so wired to idolize powers of technology? So Psalm 20 is devoted to that. Then we get into Isaiah 28. We look at the farmer and his technology. Where does it come from materially? It's actually coming out of the created order. We get into chapter 54, where we're talking about war weapons. Where do war weapons, the wielders of those weapons and the makers of war, like the most powerful, destructive, scary war weapons, where do those come from? Uh, That's in Isaiah 54. And then we get to Babylon. 
in Revelation chapter 18, and on and on it goes. I mean, we're seeing the story of cities, but we're seeing the stories of war weapons and agricultural tools and mining and industry, and it's there from Genesis to Revelation uh, if you look for it. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I think often we can we just don't assume that it's there. But as you showed, I mean, clearly it's really all throughout Scripture and kind of a major kind of biblical and theological theme uh, that really informs not only what we believe but also what we do. And that's where you kind of, in the second half of the book, you really focus on some of the ethical applications, some of the ethical questions. And I know, especially in the technology field, this is one of the most talked about areas of technology and technological development are the ethics surrounding technology, Uh, not just from a Christian perspective, but even non-Christian perspectives of how do we live with these tools? How do we use these tools? How do we design these tools? And you frame this up in the book through in light of the wisdom tradition in Scripture. So what are some of these ethical principles or considerations that we need to be aware of for the digital age? Well, I mean, that <laughs> that opens up so many different angles to go. I mean, we could talk about the Sabbath. We could talk about how we deal with idolatrous tendencies within all of the products and the, the apps that are coming out of Silicon Valley. Um, we have God's Word to open up. And to hear from him wisdom about what it means to be human, what it means to flourish, why we need a Sabbath, what it means to be a human at conception, um, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man, uh, what does it mean to be married, what does it mean to be a parent, what does it mean to be a child, what does it mean to be um, a neighbor, what does it mean to not take advantage of the poor, what does it mean to pursue justice? All of those questions are questions raised over and over again in Scripture. And so one of the things I want to do with my book is to show how relevant the Bible is for those ethical questions. And you name them. Those ethical questions are going to be around uh, forever. Uh, and so we have God's word, and it's relevant to speak to the, the digital age. And that was what I was trying to prove on the ground with 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, is to show that with an open Bible, we can address a lot of the really hard questions that uh, TikTok raises, that uh, you know, virtual church raises, that all of these platforms are raising is they're not raising necessarily new questions. They're just refocusing on old questions of what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be part of the embodied church? Um, those things are, are coming up over and over again. So when it comes to the ethics, I give 14 ethical principles that I think are kind of pretty general that will apply to a lot of different tech. But as far as into specific things like AI, which you've worked on, into robotics. I just got a book this morning from a, a Christian who's writing on the ethics of robotics. Um, I mean, there's just so many different areas that we can flesh out in the particulars. But um, I'm trying to build just a confidence that God's Word does speak to these issues. That's my main driving motive in, in this new book. Yeah, and I think you really you hit the nail on the head when you talk about you know, what does it mean to be human? I think that's one of, especially with our work at the ERLC, just outside of technology and spaces of human dignity and spaces of religious freedom or international issues or justice issues. It's really one of the most predominant and kind of striking questions of our day um, is what does it mean to be human? And that question is, as you said, it's really an age-old question. And I say, we often talk about it here as Technology doesn't cause us to ask new questions per se, as much as age-old questions in light of new opportunities. How technology expands in many ways our moral horizons of what we think we can do and what we can accomplish. But at the end of the day, a lot of those foundational questions, those more existential questions, are 
predominant and we see them throughout different kind of epics and different ages. Um, and especially in our digital age, I think that's one of the most important questions we can ask is what does it actually mean to be human? What does the Bible say about that? And I think for a lot of listeners, just hearing you talk, uh, hearing you talk not only about the book, but about the scriptures and how it speaks to all of life, including our, you know, this kind of digital age that we live in. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're a technology optimist. So how does that kind of inform the way that you approach these type of technologies? Because there are some who, you know, some of the biggest critique I got of my first book was you're too optimistic. You don't talk about enough of the negatives with technology. And there's obviously a balance that we have to strike there. But you say that you you identify as a technology optimist. Um, so how does that kind of approach or how does that change the way that you approach technology, seeing the good and the bad? Yeah, well, how you talk about technology, like how you talk about every major force in life is going to expose your theology of who you think God is or who he isn't. And so Silicon Valley will expose your theology really quick. I mean, if when you speak of the greatest powers in this world and you no longer speak of God, that's telling. And so a majority of tech books, I think by Christians even, uh, nonfiction, novels I'm seeing, uh, are essentially godless. Uh, he's not there. His presence is never leveraged. He's a zero factor in the story. He's an absentee creator. Uh, it's deism, really. You know, the watchmaker, he he wound it up and walked away. He made everything. He walked away and abandoned us to our own devices. We're on our own. It's up to us. And that's where a lot of the pessimism comes from. It's, it comes from a really weak and lame theology. And so that's what I'm trying to poke into is, is show my optimism is not optimism in Elon Musk. My optimism is in the God who reigns over every square inch of Silicon Valley. And for a lot of Christians, they don't have that. They, what they have, in, when you really press on them, they have a God who is a wimp. They have a God who can't respond. They have a God who, who has no sovereign power. They have a God who can't change anything about the world, a God who is not involved in Silicon Valley, a God who is threatened by Elon Musk, a God who is threatened by SpaceX. And it's a really wimpy theology. And so the, part of this book is really uh, pushing in on that and says, if, if Silicon Valley makes you, th makes you scared because you think you're, it's overpowered your God, basically, there's something very seriously wrong about your view of who God is. And so I'm pressing into that and saying the optimism doesn't come from my optimism in the technology elites technologist elites doing uh, whatever they want, my, my optimism is in the God who reigns over every square inch of Silicon Valley. And that's what this whole debate, this discussion uh, points out is if you're, if you're a dystopian and you know, you're a prepper and you, you've got the bunker dug out, like that says something about the God that you worship. And that's what, I, that's what my finger is on. It's like, why, why has pessimism reigned in the church for 100 years? What does that say about who God is or who God isn't? Um, and I think that's the part of the book where I, I want readers to feel tension. I want readers to feel an abrasiveness because I'm getting in their face and saying, uh, is the God of Isaiah, the God of geopolitical forces, the God of war weapons, is that the God you worship or do you have a figment in your own imagination of who God is? As a God who can only respond, who's surprised by what we create, who is trying to do his best to stifle Silicon Valley and stop Elon Musk, but can't do it. That theology is going to come out in how you talk about technology. And so for me, that's really what it comes down to at the heart is, is who is this God that we worship? 
and is he active in this world? Uh, because I think for a lot of Christians, when it comes to big tech, the God they have in their mind is simply overpowered uh, by by what they see in the powers of the technology today. And that's a problem. That's a problem inside the church that has to be addressed. Yeah, I think that's a really important truth and something I think comes across very clearly in your book, that you're an optimist, not because you think, you know, everything's going to be good and there aren't really problems as much as that we serve a God who's powerful. I mean, we often talk about it here on the podcast of looking at Revelation 21 and 22, that Jesus is sitting on the throne. He's already vanquished and conquered death. He is coming back. And so our hope is secure, even in the midst of a chaotic society, in the midst of hard questions and tensions and polarization and all of the factors and things that we deal with today, is that we have hope. We have hope not only for the age to come, but even in the current age, too, that our God is reigning and ruling, that he's already vanquished these things. Yes. And he's incredibly— yeah, he's incredibly generous with now the gifts that we get to use. Uh, again, when you look around, you know, I'm looking at my office and I see computers and I see recording devices and monitors and and lights and fans and a reading chair and books and books on my shelves. And I'm in a house with air conditioning and, you know, like insulated windows and I have a car in the garage. It's got gasoline in it and I can I can create a little fireball in that car and I can, with the you know pressure of my foot, I can drive myself around the city and I can go eat at different, you know, different international cuisine restaurants within driving distance. And like, if I have to go to the hospital and if I need a specialist in the medical field and like God is so generous with the gifts that he's poured out. And, and that's what I want Christians to see is let's not focus on the problem tech. Let's see his generosity and what he's poured out on us and give him glory for um, because that again is is one of those things where I think if you if you have a vision of of the world that's dystopian, you're not going to see the generosity of God in the tech you use every single day, the thousands of things that you have that you use every single day. And so those two things in concert, God is sovereign, He's there, and He's generous, and He's given us a world that's highly constrained and contained in what it can produce. It's uh, uh, very limited. We think, you know, we can make whatever we want to. We really can't. Like what we can invent and make is highly constrained and limited by the created order and certain laws that God has put in place. But he's an incredibly generous, active, present creator. And that's what I want people to see. One of the things that you do in this book that's fairly unique in some sense to kind of a Christian tech book per se is that you speak directly to technologists and developers and coders and um, roboticists, and you're speaking to those working in the technology field. And that's something that some friends uh, who are Christians serving in the computer science field, whether teaching or uh, coding and working and developing, often say is that we, we see these technology books, but they're not really speaking to us, the ones who are actually creating these tools. It's speaking to kind of a more broader kind of general audience. So one of the things I wanted to ask as we kind of end our time today is, what are one or two of the main takeaways or maybe encouragements that you would give to those who are working in this field or even have interest in moving into this field as believers? What kind of takeaways or what kind of encouragement would you give those who are wanting to work in technology or, or already are? Yeah, that's a great question. I dedicated the book to every Christian who's living inside a demanding and expensive tech center, who's unselfishly building churches and influencing the world's most powerful industries for good. That's who I wrote this book for. And so just last week, I was in Silicon Valley. I was at uh, UC Berkeley on campus meeting with uh, engineering students. And there's about 250 Christian engineering students uh, at Berkeley. And uh, 
I was able to hand each of them a copy of this book and say, I wrote this book for you. I wrote this book for you uh, because these are the engineers that are going to be a Tesla, Google, Microsoft in you know months or in years. And so I want to encourage Christians, young Christians who want to go into the tech industry, I want to encourage them to go in and, and, and influence industries for good. Because I think the church is lost. Like the church doesn't know how to speak to engineers. And if you're a car mechanic in a local church. I mean, the church is going to embrace you and utilize your gifts in a lot of different ways <laughs> to fix cars in the church. If you're a carpenter, same thing. You know, you're going to have a lot of work. You're going to be able to serve your church in very tangible ways. If you're an in- a computer engineer, um, the church is kind of lost. Like, they don't know how to serve you, how to um, glean your gifts for the betterment of the local church. There's really a disconnect happening. And I'm, I saw that in Silicon Valley last week where Christians in tech just don't feel like they they have a place in the church to use their gifts. And so the church needs to do a better job of envisioning them for mission, but also to encourage them into the tech field to influence these uh, these platforms, influence these, these gigantic tech corporations for good. And there are Christians who are in these industries, and they are influencing things for good, and we need more Christians, uh, not fewer and so if young Christians read this book and say, you know what, I can see God's calling for me inside Silicon Valley, I'm going to go for it. I hope this book encourages them to do that. Not all of us are called into that. Um, some Christians will be called out of it. Some Christians will be called out of Silicon Valley to be pastors and missionaries and, and, and things like that. But there are there's a huge need for, for Christians to be encouraged to go into these fields and to influence these, these platforms and these huge technology companies for good. There's just so much here that we could talk about. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. And you cover so much ground in the book, which is really impressive. And I just say kudos to you on that. Like, the Lord has been really kind um, in the way that not only throughout all of the books that you've written, um, but this one specifically feels like more of kind of a culmination of pulling some big themes together that you've been working on and chewing on over the years. So to that end, as we kind of um, end our time today on the podcast— what are some recommended resources that you would put forth or put in the hands of uh, those, whether they're entering into the technology field or wanting to think more deeply about it in their family or in kind of society in general, um, out, obviously outside of your own books, but what are some of the most formative books for you or books that you would recommend to say, hey, these are good places to start if you want to dig a little bit deeper? For me, going back to Abraham Kuyper's uh, Common Grace, his three-volume book, that for me was very illuminating years ago to be able to read that. And I would encourage any Christian who's really interested in the themes that we talked about here to really start there. I think it's a great place to start and uh, it's worth the time. Yeah, it's a huge book. (laughs) It's going to take a long time, but anything by Kuiper is going to be helpful on this because he's going to awaken new categories in your mind that you didn't think existed because we just haven't heard our theologians use them in so long. And, and so what, once you get into Kuiper, you start to realize, oh, okay, so this is coming out of Calvin. This is coming out of the Reformation. This is, this is like old school stuff. These are not brand new categories that we need. We're just reclaiming categories that are pretty old. So for me, I mean, if I had limited time, that would be the place to go. Now, thankfully, there's lots of new, new books coming out. Uh, every day now, I'm getting emails from you know guys who are writing on robotics, AI, uh, digital tech platforms. Um, there's there's so much to say on the, each of these things, but when it comes to sort of putting all of the pieces together and putting together Genesis four, Genesis six, 
um, you know, 1 Samuel 17, Job 28, Psalm 20, Isaiah 28, Isaiah 54, Revelation 18, Acts 2, Job 36, 37, try to put together these big chunks of scripture. I just have not been able to find a resource that does that. And that's really why I wrote this book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, because I, like a lot of my books are written because I can't find the book I'm looking for. And that's sort of a signal for me to write the book. And that's been true of my my whole career. All of my books have, have been written from sort of that mindset. And so really what I'm trying to do is, is compile everything I see from Kuiper, from uh, from Calvin, from Bavink, from Ilyul, from all these guys, I'm trying to put it in one place. And so really in a, in a sense, what I hope my book is, is just like a, it's a meeting ground for you to find lots of other books that will be of interest to you in your search. Just watch the footnotes because uh, I think you're going to find a lot of books that, that will come up that you'll want to read uh, as you see me footnote them in uh, in this new book. That's self-referential, though. I'm sorry to be so, so self-referential, but it really is a book that could only be written because I've learned so much from so many other people. Yeah, and I definitely um, will agree with the following the footnotes. You have some really good footnotes and various resources, and we'll make sure to link to uh, that Common Grace series that came out from Lexham with uh, Abraham Kuyper. We'll link to that in the show notes. Obviously, the number of books that you've written, including this really great volume that I highly recommend listeners to grab, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. But Tony, one, I just want to say, having you on the podcast has been a real joy. I've really enjoyed our conversation, but I just want to thank you. Thank you for your ministry. You're doing things that other people aren't doing. You're thinking and tackling some of these hard questions in a very God-centered way. Um, and I'm just really appreciative for your ministry and the gifts that God has given you. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate what you guys are doing. I appreciate your book on AI and the fact that you've sort of taken that issue and addressed it because it's 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 kind of an all-hands-on-deck. Like anybody who can address tech and media uh, need to be in on this. It's not just a a sphere for one or two authors. I mean, it really is going to take a lot of us. And so if I can encourage you to keep pressing on, that's a win for me. Well, I appreciate that a lot. Well, thank you so much for being here today on the Digital Public Square. My joy. Thanks, man. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Tony and learn more about his work in theology and ethics of technology, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.